just try that again because the, the the way you said toxic was very like labored but also unsure toxic masculinity that's yeah. what i had <laughs> oh my god toxic masculinity welcome to the two cities podcast a podcast about theology culture and discipleship and this is episode 182 in this episode we're talking about non-toxic masculinity with zachary wagner Zachary Wagner is editorial director for the Center for Pastor Theologians, a doctoral candidate in New Testament at the University of Oxford, and the author of the book that we're excited to discuss today, Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality, published by IVP. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Emmett, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this was a lovely conversation with Zachary Wagner about his book, Non-Toxic Masculinity, thinking about what toxic masculinity is and and this kind of positive vision of masculinity that he is uh, put, putting forward, kind of moving away from this dehumanizing uh, approach to masculinity that both dehumanizes men and women, as he will describe in this episode. Just thought it was really helpful and appreciated what he shared with us. Grace and Logan, what were some of the takeaways that you both had from our conversation with Zach? Yeah, I think I appreciated the kind of more holistic take on toxic masculinity, where uh, on on the one hand, there's there's a kind of identification of you know these really horrible behaviors and ways of treating other people that constitute toxic masculinity, but also I think Zach provided us with a, a kind of a really rich analysis of where this kind of uh you know how this kind of behavior gets um becomes a part of uh, a culture uh in in western christianity but then also on the other side of that um in this episode he kind of offers a word of hope for people who realize they are not treating women and themselves well um, and that they've become these kind of toxic people. I think he he offers um, some points about kind of of ways to start making steps to get out of that. And I really appreciated that kind of holistic uh, analysis of it, where on the one hand, there's a kind of diagnosis of the problem and, and an analysis of its origins, but as well as uh, some hope for people who are um, in those kinds of circumstances. Yeah, I think similarly, what I like about Zach's approach, and I think this comes out in the conversation, is that he's careful to spend time not just kind of launching into a sort of constructive model of masculinity, but to um, kind of paint the picture of the context from within which he's writing. Um, and we talk a bit, a bit about this in relation to the title, that it's kind of very explicitly um, taking on problematic aspects of purity culture. Um, and I think it's really helpful to spend time sort of properly wrestling with that. Um, so, so it was useful just to hear him sort of sketching that out and also uh, sort of what led him to writing the book. Um, I think also just really appreciated his honesty and vulnerability in the book and also the conversation. He writes very personally. He speaks personally in the in the podcast. Um, and uh, I think that takes a lot of courage to do. And it, I, that feels kind of um, admirable and aspirational to me. So I think just in terms of um, hearing someone tell their story like that was really powerful. Um, so grateful that he took the time to sort of tell us about the book, tell us about his story. Um, and as Logan says, it sort of ends with, or the book sort of leads towards rather this kind of quite constructive vision, um, which is quite a kind of positive takeaway. Um, so yeah, lots to be 
to be valued about the book and our chat with Zach. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Zachary Wagner. Well, Zach, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be with you. Looking forward to the conversation. Thanks for the invite. So we're really excited to talk about your book, Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality. Can you tell us a bit about what you're trying to do in that book? Yeah, I am trying to um, examine and to a certain sense uh, replace the way that I and I think many um, Christian young men were discipled around their sexuality uh, in the 90s and the aughts in particular. So it does, I think, fit into this genre of kind of post-purity culture books. Purity culture is a common thing that comes up in the book. And um, I was trying to think through kind of from a Christian discipleship perspective, theologically, biblically, it's very interdisciplinary in that sense, but it's, you know, it's a popular level book, so I'm not sure if you can even call it interdisciplinary. Um, but yeah, thinking through what is a uh, robust but accessible uh, theological vision for uh, male sexuality um, that can, we can commend uh, to men and to perhaps young men in particular that will uh, and this gets to some of what the book's trying to address, particularly in the front half, uh, will address what I think is a real serious crisis of um, abuse and um, compulsive behavior and all sorts of ills um, that you can just kind of see in the headlines, uh, sadly, in in the evangelical church in particular. So that's kind of where it's coming from. We can that's concisely stated, we can go in any direction you want from there. Is it worth starting just having you define what toxic masculinity is and particularly sure. where that phrase has kind of gained currency from? Yeah, I mean it is just one of these buzzwords. I, you know, my kind of I live in the UK currently and I've lived here for three years, but my kind of social cultural brain still lives in the United States in a lot of ways. And it's certainly a, a big political conversation there with um, a Me Too movement that started there. And I think it's also relevant to the election of Donald Trump and things like this. Um, so it's just kind of a term you hear all the time. And uh, I define it in the book in a slightly with a bit of a theological spin. Um, I define it as a way of living out male embodiment that dehumanizes uh, others or dehumanizes self or both, which is to say that when you dehumanize others, you are actually dehumanizing yourself. Um, and when you dehumanize yourself, you are perhaps making yourself vulnerable, liable to acting out in dehumanizing ways towards others. Um and uh, that's trying to play on this, like, what is toxic? You think of resonances of, like, poison and death and disease. 
Um, so that's where the kind of dehumanizing thing comes in there. Um, so I'm trying to commend a uh, a rehumanized uh, version of masculinity that gets into all um, sorts of connections with just the Christian story of redemption, resurrection, things like that. But um, so that's kind of the theological angle that I define it through is this dehumanizing angle, dehumanizing of self or of others. Um, but you can also just kind of do a dictionary definition on this. And what you'll typically come up with is something like it's a way of performing masculinity. You know, gender is performance is a is a theory that gets a lot of um, gets a lot of traction in various circles. Um, that is. Uh, yeah, so a, a, a way of performing masculinity that is emotionally repressed, overly macho given to sexual conquest or violence or aggression or any number of kind of bad things that uh, can be seen as excesses of um, quote unquote traditional masculinity. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, and it's been interesting uh, sort of seeing that term start to crop up in uh, sort of biblical studies books to do with masculinity in the Bible and kind of seeing people start to um, play off that and think about how to do kind of biblical criticism using that as a term. Um, I was quite intrigued by the book's title and I wondered what the importance was to you of, uh, I guess, titling it as non-toxic masculinity. So kind of thinking about what not to aim for, I suppose, rather than, I, I guess, I don't know, healthy masculinity or kind of a, some sure. other kind of term. And also linking it very explicitly to sexuality in the subtitle, um, perhaps rather than leaving it more broadly open. Um, so I just wonder if you want to talk about that a bit. Yeah, some of it is, is I guess, just crass marketing, I suppose, where you're trying to uh, take a conversation and um, suggest the book's relevance, the broader conversation and culture and suggest the book's relevance to it. Um, yeah, the book is narrowly in a certain sense around this idea of sexuality and which is to say the experience of sexuality having to do with, you know, romance and eroticism and marriage and whatever else. Um, so, uh, that's, you know, not everything about our sexuality is caught up in, you know, partnering up and having children or having sex or something like that but the book does lean more towards those those categories um and if if i'm honest i'm a little self-conscious about that because i worry that the title of the book kind of promises um a lot um and then you hope that the subtitle can clarify a little bit um i'm certainly interested in the broader conversation on a um kind of a full vision of male identity through this Christian theological lens and the biblical lens. Um, but uh, that's not, that wasn't my entry point into it. So this book uh, is about those, those questions um, um, through the more erotic, I suppose, erotic experience of, of male identity. Yeah, and definitely lots to say on that topic. So maybe a second mm -hmm. book in the works. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> you're not the first. You're not the, you're not the first person to. See. <laughs> yeah, you're not, you're not the first Tasty person to mention it. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. 
<laughs> I'm not sure if I want to double double dip on masculinity. Are we going to get a, a two cities exclusive book. on the yeah. second book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing, nothing, nothing official yet. So I really liked. Uh, I mean, like the whole thing, but I was particularly struck by your takes in chapter three, uh, which is called the dehumanization of men. What is toxic masculinity, and where do we see it in the church? Uh, can you explain to us what you do in that chapter and why frame? toxic masculinity as an issue of dehumanizing not only women but also men in different ways sure. yeah so i think again coming from this purity culture angle i think the recent decades of christian discipleship again centralized in the united states but certainly exported kind of throughout throughout the world as well have adopted and um even baptized a certain vision of masculinity that I argue is hypersexual or hyper erotic. So this kind of idea that, you know, men are gross and they only think about one thing and any kind of human body that is presented to them, they're just going to be like, okay, I want to have sex with that person. Like just this kind of stereotype, rom-com, sitcom, just gross vision of what it means to be male and christians often kind of just adopt that as yes that's actually god's somehow good created design for masculinity um and the solution to this out of control uh animalistic male thing is to put proper boundaries around it and then let men supposedly go go nuts in the context of marriage or something like that it which is bad news for all sorts of reasons um but uh that's kind of the argument of that chapter is that the church has adopted and then commended a hypersexualized vision of masculinity that i worry becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if kind of Christian discipleship is obsessively telling young men and young women, by the way, that men are these kind of sexual animals that can barely, if at all, be contained, um, I worry that it creates a, uh, a situation where men are actually given allowances and passes for dehumanizing behavior. Um, and the emphasis on the kind of purity culture deconstruction has often been on how it was uh, just profoundly damaging for so many women and the way it objectified women and uh, put all the responsibility on women for any sorts of untoward or sinful sexual behavior. Um, and, uh, you know, damaged goods, theology, all this sort of thing, all that's true. And this is not to dismiss any of it, but what I say is what I argue is that purity culture doesn't just dehumanize women. It also dehumanizes men with this kind of animalistic understanding of what it means to be male. So, uh, some of the things I say is that if purity culture objectifies women's bodies, it um, dehumanizes men by oversexualizing their minds. So it oversexualizes women's bodies and it oversexualizes men's minds. And it makes 
women's sexual objects, which is again, a form of dehumanization. They're not image bearers. They're not human beings. They are objects. And then for the male side of the equation, it makes them sexual animals. And to be an animal again, is to not be an image bearer or or a human being, it is to be a machine following your programming or just acting on instinct or something like that. So that is what I was trying to communicate in that chapter is that this isn't just men behaving badly and mistreating women and acting out in uh, kind of hypersexual modes, but actually there's a vision of masculinity that men have adopted that is itself dehumanizing to them. Um, and when you dehumanize yourself, you make yourself liable to uh, dehumanize others, as I've already said. If I may, two follow-up questions on that. Um, yeah. One, you mentioned this a little bit, but I'm interested to uh, inquire if you have any further thoughts about the kind of cultural factors uh, mm -hmm. that went into creating this crazy self-fulfilling prophecy that's kind of become this out of control, uh, you know, runaway train. Um, what were some of the fears and factors and tactics that went into kind of creating this machine as it were um, i mean maybe there's maybe that's an impossible question to answer but i mean maybe you have some some initial thoughts or, or well yeah um, i'm not sure if this is um exactly where where you're going with the question but i do think that you know i argue that purity culture is a response to something else that was happening in the culture namely the the sexual not was happening like did happen namely the sexual revolution so i think there was a really kind of crazy development in western civilization in the sexual revolution that overturned centuries even millennia of certain sexual norms and mores and uh i think it's fair to say christians freaked out in terms of how to address that and that's not to say that wasn't something to be addressed i think there were actual um you could argue i think quite easily upticks in certain types of human suffering associated with the fallout from the sexual revolution whether it be teen pregnancy or uh sexually transmitted diseases or any number of things um but as a kind of traditional sex and marriage go together premarital sexual abstinence kind of norm dissolved in a really really rapid fashion um in the 60s and 70s uh christians were kind of found who wanted to maintain a traditional sexual ethic on some of these things uh, were kind of caught scrambling. Um, and uh, that I think led to a very poor discipleship choice on the um, kind of broad, broadly construed evangelical approach to this, which was, okay, the, the culture is promising young people sex on demand in a kind of no strings attached, no uh, responsibility sort of way with the quote unquote hookup culture. 
Um, and we can actually commend a traditional sexual ethic to young people by telling them that the sex that they have that they will have in the future will be better if they follow the rules and stick to the okay. traditional uh, sexual ethic. So it's a bit of a roundabout answer to your question, but I think this is so, so core because it is the case that, you know, you know generally speaking, um, young people are preoccupied with sex in a certain way and maybe young men in particular i don't know like i get i get really nervous about that sort of rhetoric that kind of situates sexual desire as a uniquely male thing that's one of the things i'm trying to argue against but uh nevertheless this rhetoric was i think targeted to young men in particular that is to say hey you're interested in sex because you're a dude uh you're obsessed with this and you want it so bad but it's actually going to be better if you follow this sequence and don't sleep with your girlfriend, actually don't even hold hands with her. Just, just don't, you, you know, what's the mean girls thing? Like don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have sex standing up. Like no, just d- don't do it under any circumstances or you will die or you will die. And this was actually like, on the one hand, it's like all these scare tactics, but I, I want to say it's more nefarious. Both are nefarious. It seems to me on the other hand, it's this promise of like, your best sex life later um and what that does is it rather than challenges a preoccupation with and an immature and arguably an immature preoccupation with sex and eroticism in young people it actually confirmed it particularly in young men and said just kind of keep it in your pants for now and then unleash this animalistic urge in marriage which we should i mean i've implied it but we should just say directly that's not like a good deal for your like spouse in that scenario it's just like if if the vision of sexual intimacy in marriage is just this kind of like unleashed animalistic urge um that is also just dehumanizing your partner in marriage that's that's uh also problematic so sorry i feel like that was a bit of a meandering answer but no i, I think do... i think that's that hits the nail on the head i think it's, yeah I mean, it, it, um you. It does. It does strike me as like it is. It is quite a cheap response to be like, "Oh, um, you know, the way we're going to respond to the sexual revolution is to say, actually, you can have all this." Yes, most precisely. This, uh, and actually, you can have this better. It has nothing to do with like God wants you to have the best yeah. mind blowing sex. You well, can and it's also have. this kind of weird manipulation of like, "Oh, you should be faithful because then you will get what the sexual revolution offers." It's like it's promising. Kind of cheap, like version of like what the world offers only jesus can give you but like in the cheapest way like oh if yes you're, you know like the world everybody wants you know like the capitalist world everyone wants to be a millionaire you know actually if you don't have sex with your your girlfriend you're gonna be a millionaire like yeah. it's, it's like so cheap right yeah. <laughs> like it's just yeah it's just the transfer of the exact same kind of like structure transaction yeah slightly, it's, slightly it's the least yeah. and then, and it's then, the well, least yeah yeah, well, it occurs to me just listening uh, to you oh, <laughs> talk was sorry was that it's like the least costly discipleship you can imagine. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's just hold <laughs> oh. off and you will get exactly what you're holding off on in a better yeah. form than if you were holding off. Yeah. And I get that like certainly there's you know we're not going to like talk about the beatific vision or anything like or anything here. But like there are segments of Christian theology that certainly project into a future a pleasurable future but on this kind of superficial like don't have sex in the next 10 minutes have sex 
10 years from now and it'll be better um it just is a little cheap i agree it's just yeah, the so that... it's it's just the pattern of philippians 2 right it's the kenosis right just wait you know and then you'll yeah. be exalted highly exalted so the uh the uh yeah i mean then of course you know there's there's all kinds of then problems people are going to have with you know of course then you talk about this in your book when you you get to marriage and then it's not that then it's like did you do something wrong does god not love you like what's yeah. you know what do you do when you've been expecting this the whole time um final question on this chapter and then i'll i'll i'll, I'll punt to someone else uh but i i, I just want to uh, press you on one thing so at the end of the chapter um uh, you kind of get a little preachy, you know, of course, well, the whole book is, so there's not an insult, um, but you're like, you know, damn it, repent and believe the gospel, mm. go to therapy. Um, but I guess I think, like, you know, if I'm, <laughs> go to, uh, the two most important things, go to therapy, repent, and believe the gospel. <laughs> Actually, Jesus' message was repent and go to therapy. Um, yes. So, um, so uh, but I Some guess people actually like, might argue I'm, that if I'm thinking from the perspective of somebody and I'm not I didn't grow up in purity culture. But if I'm if I grew up, if I was someone who grew up as a Christian, grew up with all this crazy, you know, all this little wild stuff uh, that happened in the whatever 90s, early 2000s, I guess still now of like crazy purity culture stuff. Uh, and like, you know, th if that if that has left someone with like some kind of just messed up self-perception incredibly sure. hypersexual like they just feel like totally like just lost in this world of like you know the way purity culture has dehumanized them and affected their behavior and their interact and you know their negative inter then therefore negative interactions with other women um like what is the way forward for that person who just feels like so uh who just left with you know with dust and ashes from that whole mm. system like there's i guess there's one thing to say like repent and believe the gospel which is like that you know that's a good message um sure but i guess like for someone who's just like i feel like just so messed up by this and yeah. i feel and i'm and i'm acting horribly and i hurt yeah. people and like like what how do i you know, this is like decades, presumably for some of these people who are, who are realizing that they've been in the system, they've been in it for decades, and they realize now how like infected and mm. toxic they've become, like, what, you know, what are the what are some steps they can take in the in, in the right direction? Because I just I I, 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 I imagine that a lot of people when they kind of realize that they've been affected by the system just feel like, oh, yeah. my gosh, like, what do I even do? Yeah, I think my when I say believe the gospel, I think I have in mind something like believe that you can be born again, believe that you can actually be made into a new type of person, live into a new and truer and better humanity, a new and truer and better way of being male, um, which is to say i think so often our understandings of the gospel will kind of stop particularly in the protestant tradition um which isn't not an indictment of the protestant tradition broadly but i think in kind of popular evangelical protestantism um where the gospel is reduced merely to um a transaction whereby our sins are forgiven which relevant to this conversation means it's a transaction whereby your sexual sins are forgiven 
And believing the gospel in context of this conversation doesn't just mean like, oh, I've done a bunch of crappy things and, you know, I compulsively look at porn or I've been doing that for a decade or I cheated on my spouse or I slept with my girlfriend, whatever the case may be. Um, it is repenting of the way that you have indulged in dehumanizing sexual behavior, perhaps, or participated in a system that oppresses others or whatever the case may be. Um, but also believing that there is renewal and resurrection on the other side of that sinful choice or that sinful uh, behavior or that compulsion. Um, so it's not, um, it is a bit of a, you know, it is a call to repentance. It is a, it's, it's not a trying to shame um for its own sake but noting our brokenness and then announcing the good news that we don't need to stay broken um and the good news isn't just to get out of hell free card or it's it's a there's a better way to be um a new a truer and better way to be so uh i feel like that's actually that that's good news i guess the get out of hell free card would be good news um if you were about to go to hell in the next 10 minutes but there's uh there's i think something more immediate and better even than that amen i think something i have appreciated from what i've read so far of your book is that theological framing that there's this kind of positive vision that's offered and that's that's kind of through the lens of thinking about resurrection that potential to be renewed and to be transformed um mm -hmm. that yeah it's not just a i suppose maybe coming back to thinking about the title it's not just a this is what not to do but that um there's this kind of quite holistic uh sort of vision at the end of it and that underpins obviously everything that we're writing in the book um, and I'm sort of circling back now thinking about the chat we were having about purity culture. And I, I hadn't quite thought about that as a sort of sexual prosperity gospel before. Um, and that's yes. actually been quite a kind of helpful way of sort of thinking about the the promise that purity cu culture at its worst kind of could offer. Um, and the sort of, um, yeah, kind of the damage that that causes as a result. Um, and you talk like very personally and I think powerfully in the book about, I suppose, your own journey kind of preparing mm -hmm. for marriage and then your experience of sexual intimacy with your wife once you were married. And mm -hmm. I know uh, your your wife writes the preface and say so, um, this is all kind of very much with her sort of full enthusiasm in terms of sharing your story mm -hmm. together. Um, but yeah, it would just be really great to hear sort of more of that from your perspective, because I think that's so sure. powerful and uh I'm sure very difficult to do to sort of be that vulnerable with people, um, but a real, a, a real gift, I'm sure. Yeah. So yeah, thank you so much for asking. And um, I mean, to go back to the previous question that I was answering from, from Logan, um, you know, he said, I got a little preachy at the end of that chapter. And part of it is like, that's to like, that's to myself, I think when I'm writing that, um, was kind of being, having been reared on, you know, certain aspects of purity culture much in every way. And in particular to men, like this promise of this um, great sex life in marriage or whatever the case may be, and a kind of shame-free experience of your your sexuality on the other side, if you follow the rules or something like that. Um, 
yeah, that just didn't pan out for my wife, uh, Shelby and me. Um, and I talk about this at some length in the book, as you said, Grace, and the, um, and again, with, uh, Shelby's consent and enthusiastic permission to, to share in this way. Um, but when we got married, you know, we weren't, we weren't intimate before we got married. So in that sense, we followed the rules, but we found pretty much immediately that this wasn't panning out for us the way we either of us would have hoped, um, or expected. And, you know, in conversations with others and friends who have, um, been willing to open this part of their lives to me, uh, you find that's not uncommon and particularly this kind of like honeymoon hype in purity culture, where it's just like, Oh, imagine how great your honeymoon will be. And like, Anybody who's been married for about 10 minutes knows that that's just kind of like silly. If you have like absolutely zero sexual experience, you're probably not just going to be like firing on all cylinders 10 minutes into your marriage. Um, and that's just, yeah, that's just not how it works. And I can't believe we told kids that that's how it works. Um, so, uh, but for us, you know, it's, it, on a more serious note, it was, a, it was a profound struggle and, uh, long story short that I talk about at some length in the book is a huge part of that was one, the kind of residual shame that I was experiencing in my own life, mostly. And I think a lot of people um, and a lot of men uh, will relate to this uh, associated with kind of pornography use and masturbation um, from before I was married. And then also I, I should say, and I talk about this in the book um, uh, also during early, the early years of my marriage as well. Um, so that was, I, uh, a factor on my side, but then the, the other huge factor is that my wife is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, um, which is not something that is you is very often on the radar screen in purity culture. Um, the way these sort of unwanted and violent and uh, forced uh, sexual experiences um, shape us and wire us and um, scar us for. Uh, our lives in so many ways, but certainly in our um, in our capacity, ability, and to engage uh, sexually with another person later in life. Um, so, man, this book was the outgrowth of me having to work through a lot of that. It was a it was a discipleship journey for me um, that involved me again repenting of certain types of toxic sexual entitlement that had kind of been woven into me um certainly by my own brokenness and perhaps my own temperament and a person of things but also by the culture and then even the church um so this was a this was a, a journey for me um that you know theology is autobiography so often and um that was certainly the case with this book and um it was it was a, a process and i hope others others can can find uh things that they connect with and resonate with but uh, mostly that they they might find it helpful as well i feel like that modeling of honesty and um how to have those difficult conversations and making yourself sort of vulnerable uh and kind of modeling that is in itself a kind of another example of the sorts of masculinity it would be wonderful to kind of see being aspired to more mm. broadly um so not just on the topic of sexuality but thinking about how to broker those difficult conversations um and particularly sort of countering that 
uh, that stereotype about men finding it difficult to talk about their emotions and to have yes. sort of honest conversations. Um, and I think this book is such a wonderful example of doing that. And I hope um, lots of others will kind of follow suit in doing that. Um, mm. I was sort of wondering whether, uh, sorry, sort of changing direction slightly, but I, I wonder whether you would say you think there is such thing as biblical masculinity uh, or maybe biblical masculinities. Um, I did a little search of your book yeah. to see if the term came up. Um, is that a term you think is helpful? If so, why or, or why not? Well, you even suggested a little bit, and I know this has been part of kind of your research, but biblical masculinities, plural, I think is perhaps a more helpful way of uh, even framing this question, which is to say like, there's a vision of masculinity that every person, if you ask them to produce, would be probably a bit different. And in different cultures, there might be certain overlap. And in different communities, there would be certain values that are shared and prized and this and that, the other thing. Um, I, generally speaking, um, <clears throat> think biblical manhood or masculinity at least for the moment is pretty much ruined as a term um and i hesitate with the word biblical in general um because and this is you know i'm i'm showing my my stripes as a as a as a biblical researcher and scholar i suppose but um you know as everyone on this call understands um, no matter what your kind of theology of scripture is and the authorship of the Holy Spirit and things like that, certainly there is a human um, author as well to every uh, text of scripture uh, with varying perspectives and um, diversity and how things are presented. Um, and I was just doing some thinking on this today. I I started to write a Twitter thread and thought better of it and deleted it. Um, but it was particularly on this idea of, and this kind of gets to your question, I think, um, like the, well, I was also reading um, Fathered by God by John Eldridge, for crying out loud. This is kind of what got me thinking about this. I was thinking about this, reading this today. Um, but this kind of warrior masculinity mindset, and Eldridge will say things in the book. This is the most direct I've come after Eldridge on on record before but he'll say things like in the heart of every man is a warrior um and god is a warrior and he is placed in the heart of a man this kind of warrior heart and you're created in god's image first of all are women also created in god's image last time i checked they were so what does it mean that the warrior god is also imaged in women that's that's a that's a uh that's an interesting question to ask from this kind of quote unquote biblical masculinity perspective. Um, but I also think, yes, it is the case that certain biblical texts seem to speak positively or at least describe traditional kind of male aggression or heroic warrior exploits or whatever the case may be. But, but this if we want to talk about biblical masculinity, must be balanced against something like the Beatitudes, where Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's not blessed are the bold, for they will inherit the earth. Or um, 
just what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when he says God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong, which he says in the same letter where he, you know, ESV translates, um, what is it, guys, help me out, the andritsa or something. Um, yeah, because it's an imperative. Um, you know, act like men or be strong or something like this, which is somehow taken as this kind of wholesale endorsement for all Christian discipleship that men need to act, quote unquote, manly at all times. And I just think we see something different modeled in the Lord Jesus, um, that it's not just this kind of strength warrior mindset. And whatever you want to say about the kind of male warrior as commended in scripture, I think you absolutely need to balance that against the cross, which is not a story of triumph in the traditional kind of male warrior sense of it, but uh, actually uh, defeat and um, shame and emasculation, uh, intentionally so, um, on the part of the executioners um, towards the victims of crucifixion. Um, so that's all to say to your question, Grace, like commending quote unquote biblical masculinity just seems completely complicated and unhelpful to me. Um, because you have all sorts of hermeneutical questions that come up and I want to focus, um, not to mention historical ones and blah, blah, blah. Um, I want to focus on commending men to be, uh, characterized and filled by the fruits of the spirit. I feel like that's a much more <laughs> like um, stable ground uh, on which to stand in terms of Christian discipleship than, um, you know, men need to be warriors because you're always going to be leaving certain men out. You know, there are just men who will not experience their male embodiment through this warrior trope. And that's to say nothing of the fact that endorsing that trope runs perilously close to um violence uh scripts of masculinity that um can lead to great harm um for all people um and certainly women so i think it's um now time that for john and i to confess that we were part of a dormitory or a hall in Biola that just was like randomly themed after Braveheart yep. for absolutely about no right. reason for anything, for nothing more than one day someone was like, what if we like made our, what if we made our dorm like Scotland and, and like we were all Mel Gibson and then, and then everyone was like, yeah. And then all of a sudden we had like tartan shit everywhere. Like, like we had, we had, a, like fake version of the Highland Games. We, um, did. we did. What was that called no again? Way. I, I, forget, I, forget what, I forget what it was called, but our dorm was called Stuart. And so um the I guess that was, sounds kind of Scottish. The nickname it was the Scottish. Yeah, the nickname was the Scottish Lodge. And uh one of the things that was uh interesting was that on campus in the lobbies, um you couldn't watch any rated R films. It was just a rule. Um, mm. you, you could watch rated R film like in your dorm, like that's fine. But the, in the lobbies, if you're going to subject everybody to, uh, you know, the film you're watching with your group of friends or whatever, it just can't be rated R. It's just a rule. Except in Stuart, you could watch Braveheart. 
<laughs> Although, we have to also mention that Jordan Peterson tells us that being meek is about being a monster. I'm joking. Oh, this is that video. No, I did not. Oh, okay. So, so funny, funny. You mentioned the thing about meekness. Um, I don't know where or why I saw this. <clears throat> I don't know where or why I saw this, but there's there was this video. Like, I think there's a clip circulating around Twitter, uh, and I guess Twitter thinks I'm I I need um certain kinds of male figures in my life because I guess it fed <laughs> me this uh uh this this clip of Jordan Peterson um, where he's like where no 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 I think it was there was a biblical scholar who was responding to it. That's why I saw it. Mm. And um, he goes, you know, what is this? You know, I was reading the Beatitudes and I was like, got to the section that said, blessed are the meek. And I was like, no, that can't be right. I'm trying to do his accent. <laughs> he's just straight up like, nah, that's bullshit. And he's like, uh-huh. this is what it means. You should be a monster. You should know how to control it. That's what it yeah. means. And I'm like, yeah. like what? what but i think it's just so funny that like this this picture of like the warrior masculinity is like so ingrained that even i mean not that he's a christian but even like when he reads a text like that he's like no well i think this text must say something right so it has to say you know something that i believe which is about this this warrior masculinity nonsense Um, well which is to say that our lens of reading scripture is often far more culturally informed than we care to admit so we favor certain passages like you know first corinthians 15 or no 16 or whatever it is act like men um over and against first corinthians 2 which says god has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong um because one fits our kind of masculine narrative and the other doesn't which is to say maybe our masculine narrative is written by our cultural context which is either 1950s america or you know victorian england or whatever the case may be rather than this kind of purely drawn out exegetical thing from the biblical text that's not filtered in any way um because we just reinterpret we kind of like get to the Beatitudes and like, well, that has nothing to do with what it means to be a man. It was like, well, why not? Certainly, certainly it does. Um, and, you know, this is, this is, this is like, this is the guy talking like Christianity, like this is Jesus talking here. Um, and if we just kind of like, no, I liked the part where Jesus, you know, like, we'll just go for it. I mean, Mark Driscoll would talk about this all the time when he was talking about the, um, Whenever you would talk about the kind of manly Jesus and Driscoll and Eldridge and others make, and I don't, I have more nice things to say about John, uh, about Eldridge than I do about Driscoll. I'll say that, but. um, Solid caveat. Yeah. So the, but they make a lot out of this, like Jesus was a carpenter trope, like, which is not made anything of by the biblical authors first of all, like, it's just not, doesn't figure at all in the portrait of Jesus. It's just by the way. Um, and then, uh, they'll also go to revelation where Jesus appears on the white horse and he's like this badass with a tattoo and a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's just going to open a can of whip ass. Um, and like, this is, this is how Driscoll would talk about this. And I think actually a pretty, a pretty, um, compelling interpretation of the apocalypse there is that the sword coming out of Jesus's mouth is not like it's it's not actually a sword that he's going to murder people with it's it's imagery about the power of the words 
spoken by Jesus that pronounced, yes, pronounced judgment, but it's not like Jesus. Yeah, he got, and and by the way, his the robe dipped in blood is his own blood, not just like I'm gonna, I just got finished cutting a bunch of people's heads off. Which is not to say like that's there's no not a god of judgment in scripture or anything like that, but I'm just saying, like, we read these things through a lens. And the lens is, I think, that men like hearing that. God and Jesus wants them to be this kind of like badass macho version of themselves. Um, number one. Number two, I think it there's something aspirational for a, for men. Um, you know, and if there if there's something nice I can say about Driscoll, this is it. I think there was something aspirational to men who were lacking direction, lacking a sense of purpose, where or were, you know enslaved to compulsive behaviors or coming from rough backgrounds, which he himself came from um, to like, no, there's like something meaningful I can do with my life. There's something I can be. Um, but I, that in of itself is not grounds to selectively or read or misread scripture. Well, there's also more to the Beatitudes. It's not just meekness, right? Peacemaking is one, sure, yes. one of the things Jesus mentions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also sword making, actually. Well, and, and it gets to the gospel. <laughs> I mean, we could just talk about biblical text all day. But people will say, like, I, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And say, like, look, Jesus came to start wars or something. Like, I, I don't know. But. Like the same <laughs> Jesus came or said to Peter, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by us. So like, can we just introduce just like the tiniest amount of tension into the way we read biblical texts, please? Instead of, it, it, sorry, I'm just getting a little cranky about this, but I, I, let's go. Yeah. Which <laughs> is just on this masculinity stuff. We're just bad readers. We're bad readers of the biblical text. And we're like, people get so worked up in this world about eisegesis and people just kind of reading into it. It's like, no, you're not letting the biblical text say what it, what it says, what it's actually saying. And you're just kind of making Jesus in this kind of sissy image. And I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm happy to grant that Jesus was a carpenter. And I guess that means he worked outside a lot. And like Jesus did say the thing about not bringing peace but a sword and talked about strife between family members and things like that resulting from his ministry. And uh, But he also said the other things. And yeah, he flipped over some tables once, but he did say the Beatitudes. And he did tell Peter to put his sword away. And when push came to shove, he got murdered, which is not a badass thing to do. Like, it's kind of <laughs> humiliating. And I think the only reason we think Jesus's death is heroic is in retrospect. It was not like dying, like die, death by crucifixion was not a masculine thing to have happen to you. That meant you got your ass kicked and then you get strung up and humiliated. And that's just not a very masculine thing to have happen to you. Um, and uh, by design, the opposite. Sorry, I feel like we're talking in circles on this. I'm, but... I'm really I, just on that point about like eisegesis. Um, hmm. I still get amazed about what you said to me before about 
how you read every security mm. text. Do you want to share that? Because I think that's sure. Yeah, I mentioned this in the yeah. book. I mentioned this in the book as well. Like the way we have narrowed our frame for what even purity language in scripture means. It, 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 go back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In my kind of like purity culture every man's battle discipleship brain it's like oh man if i want to see god i better stop looking at porn and masturbating which is like probably true but that's just like not narrowly what that passage has in view and quote-unquote biblical purity is a pretty varied and robust category that yes includes sexual categories explicitly um in certain passages but how can a young man keep his way pure blessed are the pure in hearts um all of these kind of instances of the word pure um are not narrowly sexual reference if there's nothing in the immediate context of that passage to suggest that it is and sometimes there is but in those two examples uh it's not and i think anyone who kind of is even the way we use purity language when we talk about sexual purity um, it slants our our lens that we read scripture um, in a, yeah, in a certain type of like sexual exceptionalism is the way I describe it, where that becomes the be all and end all of discipleship is just sexual categories to the exclusion of things that scripture talks at some length about, um, including with uh, purity language. Thank you so much for this conversation and telling us about your book. What do you hope people will take away from that, from the book, sorry, whether that's men reading it, if that's women reading mm. it, people who are kind of at different stages of life? Um, yeah, yeah, what are you hoping the impact of the book's going to be? Yeah, one is related to an earlier part of the conversation is situating our understanding of human sexuality and male sexuality um, as a subset of that within the broader narrative of redemption, not just like this promise of a great fulfilling sex life which you know god has promised you no such thing just for the record um but or or you know the forgiveness of your sexual sins but what does creation fall incarnation um imitation of christ death and resurrection and renewal all of these things what does this have to do with our sexuality because i think we have theologically often just really gone kind of for the bottom shelf here um and not situated our sexuality in in a broader redemptive narrative so i hope um you know there's a chapter in the middle of the book where i talk about jesus and the redemption of the male body uh where i'm trying to just get a fuller look at what Jesus means for this conversation about male sexuality, more than just like Jesus was a carpenter and you can too, or something weird like that. Um, so that's number one. Number two is what I trace in part three, which is really most of the second half of the book, which is replacing this kind of purity paradigm where there's kind of this Edenic state of sexual innocence that we commend people to maintain as best as they possibly can um either just in general or until marriage um 
just don't make any mistakes. And then if you do, you're kind of ruined and then you fall and it's just, it's not really even coherent um, theologically, it seems to me. Um, but replacing that purity paradigm with uh, more uh, virtue formation paradigm or uh, what I describe it as, is growing up. So a growing up into Christ or in Christ likeness. Um, so I try to kind of walk through the stages of um, a boy's and a man's life in the second half of the book, from boyhood to adolescence to adulthood um, to singleness or marriage, um, and then ending with uh, death and resurrection, which is trying to trace this idea that, let's just say the virtue of chastity is not something that we like have and then can lose like any Christian virtue. It is something that we want to be growing more and more into. Um, and the virtue of chastity in particular is not something that's only for single people. It's something that all Christians married or single are called to, um, and called to grow more into. So married people should be growing in the virtue of chastity. And there's this lovely definition um, that I cite late in the book with, uh, of the virtue of chastity. Is, that is chastity um, recognizes that others belong to God, which is this wonderful kind of rehumanizing vision um, of, yes, restraint that we associate with chastity, but a restraint that is not just kind of like penning the animal in, but a restraint that is honoring and deferential to the dignity of others. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope that would just be a, a takeaway that it really is. A, there's kind of a, a moment for me in the book that I hope, um, you know, when, if I'm talking to my younger self um, when I'm writing, one of the messages I would want to say and what I try to communicate is that it really is a wonderful and a beautiful thing to be a man. Like it is not maleness in and of itself is not toxic and you can um, be a wonderful and beautiful human being as a man, um, not in spite of your sexuality, but in and through it. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I just hope that there is um, hope and beauty and a path towards joy um, at the end of it and, and, and growth. Sorry, that was not really, uh, really concise, but those are some of my hopes and aspirations for, for the book. Well, Zach, thanks so much for joining us and for uh, everything that you shared. Uh, we hope everybody checks out your, uh, your book. Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality, published by IVP. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. 